welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's book. I am Chris Pullman and you have found yourself at my podcast, in my podcast listening to my podcast. Let's go with that. You found yourself listening to Chris Reed's book. This is, for those of you for whom this is your first episode, this is a serial podcast where I read chapters, pages, out of my first novel, Mystery and Deceit, From Earth to Mars. Currently, I have finished reading the main body of the book. I am re-recording the first few chapters as well as recording the sources for the paper that I include in the appendix. That has already been recorded, I think it was last week and the week before, so those episodes are out there if you care to take a look. But there isn't a whole lot of introduction for these because again these are just sources, so I'm going to go ahead and jump right into reading them. Na reply to USDOD, dated 15 May 2035. NAR Defense, One NAR Way, Commerce, Wisconsin, 53085. USDOD, Attention, Amy Henshaw, Pentagon, Washington, D.C., 20001. General Henshaw, we gratefully acknowledge receipt of your most current order and are pleased our newest fighter met with your and the government's approval. To ally your concerns, while four carriers worth of aircraft in half a year is a tall order, especially for equipment of this sophistication, our facilities are prepared for the task. Rest assured that full delivery will be made on time for the Enterprise, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and John F. Kennedy. Also, regarding your inquiry into our advanced armor program, I must again reiterate our stance. We, as sole holders of the technology, feel that it would too drastically alter the balance of global power were it to be made available to any standing army. Knowing your service background, we know you can understand our concern. Likewise, we at NAR understand why you must keep requesting the technology. It is our hope that our repeated yet consistent replies will not strain our relationship. As always, contact us anytime with questions or concerns. Sincerely, James Christopher. These next entries come from the Dissension Collection. Slaughterhouse Butchers, May 24th, 2046. To those who have called my opines ignorant and misinformed, the evidence of what I say is right there for you to see. Yes, I've called the TDF baby killers because they are. What better label fits a military force that intentionally kills over 500 children? Perhaps, as some have suggested, slaughterhouse butchers fits better. After all, few others than those at a slaughterhouse could claim such brisk and efficient business as 500 lambs in one day. Or perhaps the other figures speak better. 68,000 plus chaos soldiers wounded or, mostly, killed. Another 5,000 plus missing in action? When in human history has any other army done so well at maiming and killing than these butchers of the TDF? In their own orders on the defense of Chicago, they were told to set up your kill zones for maximal effect. 
The enemy comes in force. Our kill-to-loss ratio must be exceptionally high. They suffer from bloodlust as well. Kill them all might be a better slogan for the TDF than protecting the greater good. What sort of heartless monsters can kill so single-mindedly as slaughterhouse butchers? The TDF and their elite. Again, the numbers speak for themselves. Gary, 2457. Article, Baby Killers, May 20th, 2046. Last week, a reader wrote an op-ed expressing their discomfort with the term baby killers as applied to the forces of the TDF. What I would like to know is what title would better fit these professional killers. During the Chicago campaign, not only did they enlist the help of every able-bodied citizen of Chicago, including those aged 13 to 17, but also slew several hundred children. As distasteful as it may be to hear, the forces of the TDF killed 523 children at Chicago. In their own report on the Battle of Chicago, 2 May to 3 May 2046 inclusive, they list this number, though it is buried at the bottom of the casualty figures table. What sort of heartless people are the TDF anyway to so order their troops to kill children? In intercepted orders to field commanders, the TDF command ordered their troops to expend every effort in the defense of Chicago. No matter the forces chaos sends against us, we must prevail. This will be a test of our resolve and constitution. A test indeed. To blatantly greenlight the wholesale murder of children is simply horrendous. These people in the TDF think themselves gods above the law. It is time they were reined in and taught a lesson. Gary, 2457. Article. Bring in the troops to send them out. I'm sorry, this is an email. Email. Bring in the troops to send them out. July 8th, 2050. Attention, all loyal and patriotic humans. Yes, we mean you. We're calling for your help to send off the TDF with a properly loud Bronx cheer. Ever since the proclamation yesterday, we've been trying to piece together the perfect send-off. Late in the night, it came to us, a rally of disapproval. While we don't think, while we don't know the where yet, we do know the when. August 7th. Can you contribute $35 to help finance our rally? Click here. All you need to do is visit the Humans for Humanity website now and sign up. Once we have more details firmed up, we'll get back to you. As much as we can, we'll help defray costs, including buzzing costs, to the rally sites. But if you can contribute now, every dime will help. Won't be able to make it on August 7th? Donate $35 so someone else can. Folks, our government has done the right thing here. No force on earth other than the voice of the people can stand up against the type of threat the TDF represents. So let's make sure that our voices will be heard. At the rally, we'll have local, state, national, and global leaders on hand to lend their voices to our cause. So sign up now! We want there to be more of us than there are of them left. So click here to sign up now or to contribute for someone else. In addition to speakers, we'll have bands playing and crafts for the kids. Bring your whole family in the send-off of the obsolete TDF. This message was paid for and distributed by Humans for Humanity. Click here to unsubscribe. Top 10 list. Top 10 reasons TDF shouldn't be freed to leave yet. Number 10. Without the TDF around, we'll be reminded of just how bad and stupid socialists and liberals really are. <laughs> Number 9. I haven't sold my stock of I Hate the TDF screen print tees yet. 1-800-HATE-TDF. Volume discounts available. Number 8. 
with abortions illegal so many places, who will liberals call to get rid of their kids if the TDF leaves? <laughs> Number seven, the whole mass graves industry will collapse without the TDF demand. Number six, there was a number six, but the TDF killed it. Number five, without the TDF, I'll have to go back to hating my mother-in-law, and she makes good cookies. Number four, parking in Chicago was so much easier thanks to the TDF. If we get rid of them, they won't be able to do the same elsewhere, and New York's just crazy this time of year. Number three, once they're gone, who'll prop up the enfeebled Terran government? Number two, without the TDF run, we'll have to look all the way back to the 80s for shiny suits that are both tacky and functional. Number one, who will be left to spawn the next global crisis? Santa Claus? Article, Walking About Barefoot, August 30th, 2046. Has anyone noticed this about the TDF elite? Enough of them to notice walk around barefoot. I'll grant you that one may walk around barefoot at home, on the lawn, at the beach, but on a battlefield? Only a madman does it there. The possibilities for injury are simply too great. What then about these elite? Are they not afraid of injury, or do they simply believe themselves invulnerable? You know who else walked around barefoot? The Olympians, the gods of the ancient world. Do these people believe themselves divine? What pomposity they have! Next, they'll go into battle wearing only their uniforms and no discernible body armor. Wait! They do that now! Look at this, people. I seem to remember something in the Bible that goes, The Lord is your God, and you shall have none before him. Well, these people have made themselves gods and put themselves over the true God. It's plain as day to anyone with eyes to see it. They must be stopped. Their unholy war brought to an end before they bring our world to ruin. John 316. Article. We don't need him. August 3rd, 2050. I would like to start by saying how sick and tired I am of hearing people complain about how horrible and unfair the exile of the TDF is. As far as I can recall, our elected representatives, after careful deliberation, voted in favor of the exile. The reasons they've released seem good enough to me. But more importantly, why do they need to stay? It was a great idea in the beginning to have a global army, subservient to the government, against whom no other army could stand. But since the TDF peace, there have been amazing advances in all sorts of areas, what with countries not needing standing armies anymore. But where did the threat come from? Hmm? Where did Chaos the Destroyer emerge from? The TDF. That's right, the greatest threat mankind has ever known was fully a product of the very people who saved us from ourselves. When there's only one military force in the world, that's where the threat comes from. I'll remind you that we still have the police all around the world. Not a nation exists without a police force. So again, what do we lose by the TDF leaving? The systems of law and order still exist. Emergency response personnel still exist. You can't tell me that the cops and the firefighters aren't adequate for their jobs, because if that's the case, we need better ones. And anyway, at this point, there are, what, 15,000 of the TDFers left on Earth? How effective could they be anywhere on Earth anyway? Let them go, I say. And all you wine bags at the grocery store, at the Walmart, the bank, Fleet Farm, and everywhere else can just shut the TDF up. Scotch 420. 
The Cronkite Collection. Article, Day of Exile, a report. What follows is One Network's live coverage of the TDF's original exile from Earth. It picks up as the command vehicle of Eric Pullman comes within range of the Sheboygan Spaceport, Sheboygan County, North America, Earth. I can see his vehicle now. It's approaching the stalled end of the column at the spaceport gates. Our viewers can see the live feed on the screens, Bill. Tell us what sense do you get of the atmosphere there? Uh, well, Scott, even from up here, it's apparent that there are many more detractors in the crowd than supporters. From signs to chance, they're making their presence uh, thoroughly felt. Thank you, Bill. We now go to Trisha on the ground with Sheboygan County Sheriff Ronald Bellamy. That's right, Scott. I'm here with Chief Bellamy. Now, sir, I understand that the TDF is in operational control of the whole port right now. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, Trisha. Chief Bellamy said. After the unfortunate events of a few weeks ago here, the Prime Minister issued an executive order placing the port under complete TDF jurisdiction. The event you're referring to, of course, would be the destruction of a couple of cargo ships, Trisha commented, as well as the loss of personnel aboard, correct, Chief Bellamy added, ignoring the addition. Trisha continued, how would your deputies feel about having their authority usurped like this? Trisha, honestly, they have a better grip on the situation than we had. They have more personnel that they can use for security, as well as better and more varied forms of non-lethal crowd deterrence. Are you saying that they have such means of crowd deterrence deployed? Trisha asked, clearly trying to lead the chief. In light of uh, why they were ordered to take operational control of the security here, it uh, it is completely understandable why they have such measures already deployed, Bellamy said. Are you saying, then, that their people are not to be trusted? That we should trust these soon-to-be exiles over loyal Terran citizens? Trisha asked. Bellamy visibly fought to maintain his composure. Uh, what I am saying is that, complying as they are with the Articles of Exile, and having already suffered the loss of over 50 personnel by the hands of loyal Terran citizens, such a deployment of non-lethal force is understandable, Bellamy said, taking a calming breath. It sounds to me, Trisha began a steer in her voice, that you sympathize with these people. As a professional law enforcement officer, I sympathize with their preparations, Bellamy replied defensively. We are deployed, if we were deployed, as they were, uh, we would likewise take such precautions based on the existing threat of violence. However, we would be out there with live ammunition. Because you distrust your fellow citizens, Trisha accused. Because that is all we have in our arsenal, thanks to a federal government who felt that law enforcement equipment was no longer a worthy priority, Bellamy responded. On screen, Scott broke into the conversation. Trisha, Chief Bellamy, I believe we're going back to Bill in the news helicopter for some more aerial footage. Chief, thank you for your time, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. The second frame on screen switched to an in-cabin live shot of Bill. Bill, what can you tell us about how things are proceeding? Uh, well, Scott, as our viewers can see, the loading of the TDF spacecraft is proceeding in an orderly fashion. All transports are now within the base, which has been secured and locked down. 
So no one is being allowed in or out, Scott asked. That is correct, Bill replied. What had been an underlay shot from the helicopter was replaced by a boom camera shot from one of the port's gates. As the camera zoomed in, several TDF guards could be seen closing and locking the gate from the inside. Uh, it is our understanding that at this point such a lockdown is as much to prevent the TDF from coming out of the port as it is to keep the crowds outside. Understandable after the welcome some of the earlier transports received. Bill White reporting from our news helicopter. Bill, we will be rejoining uh, Bill will be rejoining us closer to the conclusion of the TDF exodus. Uh, thank you again, Bill, Scott said. My pleasure, Bill replied. The entire screen was again taken up with a static shot of Scott. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, welcome to this live special report on this, the day of the TDS, TDF exodus from Earth. We will be maintaining live shots from the Sheboygan Spaceport in Wisconsin, United States, throughout the day. Right now, let's go to our senior military analyst, uh, Sherman Welsh, who is at our studio outside of the spaceport. Sherman. Uh, a pleasure to have you on. The pleasure is mine, Scott. This is an historic moment that I'm proud to be part of. As the TDF took several hours to complete loading their materials, the network filled the intervening hours with numerous interviews. Such was less than completely revealing. What follows is the final moments of the TDF's presence on Earth. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you, Madam Minister. I apologize. Uh, Bill in our helicopter has reported that the last of the cargo was loaded into its ship. Let's go to Bill. Uh, Bill, Scott said. The two-panel shot of Scott on one side, the Minister of Homeland Security on the other, was replaced with a side-by-side -side shot of Bill, as well as a live shot of the port. Uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, as you can see, people are actually exiting the ships right now. I, I can't tell you why from up here. Bill, Scott said, we're being told by our ground teams that Eric Pullman was spotted in a call. Scott brought his right hand to his ear, nodding his head. Our chief Versailles reporter is telling us that the Prime Minister just took a call from TDF Commander Eric Pullman. While we have no audio of the conversation, we do have some inclination of what this call means. For more details, we go to Sherman Welsh on the ground at the spaceport. Uh, Sherman. Uh, that's right, Scott, Sherman said as he appeared on screen. Uh, this is a significant call. Our sources confirm that uh, this call had been scheduled for a few weeks. It is the last call from the TDF commander, Eric, uh, Eric Pullman, to the Terran Prime Minister before the TDF uh, begin their departure from Earth. Uh, what this signifies is that all ships have been loaded with the exception of personnel. Sherman, thank you for that. We go quickly to Bill, Scott said as Sherman was replaced on screen by Bill. Scott, I want to tell you and all our viewers that we are being ordered out of a very specific airspace. Uh, what our pilot tells me is that it represents a window for a flight path from the east. Essentially what we can expect. Uh, is is an overflight of the port of some sort uh, any minute. We, we will attempt to get you a shot of it from the air if possible. Thank you, Bill, Scott said as he again took up half the screen. The other half was a mildly shaky, moving shot trained in over the port, taking in eastern portions of Sheboygan County and encompassing the shoreline and part of western Lake Michigan. 
We're going to maintain a uh, half screenshot from the helicopter in anticipation of the flyover. Sherman, what light can you shed on such an overflight? The left half of the screen switched back to Sherman sitting behind a crowd outside the port. Uh, well, Scott, uh, essentially what it means is that the TDF are uh, being honored. Uh, it's sending a message, uh, most likely from up in the government at this point, that while the TDF is being forced off planet, uh, their efforts are appreciated. I'm sorry to cut you off uh, again, Sherman, Scott said, visibly caught off guard as something was quickly said into his earpiece. Uh, Bill tells us the overflight is underway. The screen now split between the yet shaky view of the sky from the helicopter as well as a steady shot from the ground. Uh, Sherman, came Scott's voice over top of the images. If you can see them on your monitors, can you tell us what you're seeing? Both camera shots zoomed in on tiny specks in the sky, revealing several craft flying in formation. Uh, Scott, those are all fighter jets that were recommissioned toward the end of the war. Uh, Save the lead craft. That is an our defense trans-atmospheric fighter. The way this formation is set up is very significant. Uh, the lead ship, you can see it there in the aerial shot, uh, has TDF markings on its wings. Uh, this formation is signaling uh, how the nations of the world have followed the lead of the TDF. The shot keeps their focus, but more and more surrounding scenery works its way in. Uh, Scott, watch for what the TDF craft does. Uh, this is a message uh, from the government to the people. While the people's voice forced the vote that exiled the TDF, uh, this overflight is going to symbolize uh, the response of at least part of the government. The ground shot widened to encompass the crowds outside the port as the jets came close enough to be visible. Uh, there, watch, came Sherman's voice. The aerial shot showed afterburners igniting on the TDF craft, quickly cycling from red to orange, yellow, blue into an un unbelievable white. The ship's trajectory seemed to turn 90 degrees up, shooting it spaceward. As it did so, the remaining craft in the wing held their formation, punching their afterburners. Uh, Scott, this is our answer. What message was just sent, Sherman? Scott asked. It's very clear, Scott. This was an honor overflight. As the TDF jet separated from the formation, they kept its place void. It's saying that uh, the efforts, the impact of the TDF continue... Uh, carry on despite them leaving. It honors that exodus. It also, I would point out, is symbolic uh, of the fact that this planet still moves forward even without, uh, even without the TDF. Thank you, Sherman, Scott said as the aerial camera focused on the receding craft, the ground camera fo following the TDF jet's ascent through the atmosphere. Bill, I understand you have something to report. Uh, yes, Scott, I can see out of the cockpit that the TDF personnel are loading into the craft. Uh, a few of the smaller ones are already taxiing onto one of the three runways. We are being advised at this moment by spaceport control that the craft will be disembarking momentarily. Uh, all craft are being reminded... Uh, um, yeah, yes, yeah. All craft are, aircraft are being reminded to strictly observe uh, the port's airspace. Thank you, Bill. Scott said as the left screen again cut to him. Our ground crew is reporting that Chief Bellamy and his people have officially reassumed control of spaceport Sheboygan. The aerial shot switched to one of the port. As it did so, one of the small spacecraft already lined up along a runway suddenly nosed up, its engines blossoming a light blue as it shot down the runway. 
as our viewers can see, uh, the exodus has begun. The TDF spaceships are now beginning to leave Earth. The shot of Scott switched back to a ground shot wide over the crowds outside the port. There could be seen the craft taking off, their ascent angles quickly steepening. We are told, continued Scott, that for all the spacecraft to disembark should only take a few moments at this point. Sherman, uh, what is the atmosphere like there on the ground? Uh, well, Scott, uh, uh, very intriguing. Sherman's voice was audible, just barely over the near-continuous roar of engines. Uh, when, it, when it was clear that the TDF uh, was disembarking, the crowds here were uh, overall quite jubilant. Uh, cheers and uh, raucous singing began as if uh, by their own volition. And uh, now, however, it is simply... Uh, uh, the larger craft, the larger craft are getting underway now, Sherman yelled just barely above the loud roar of engines. Uh, Scott, Scott, if you can still hear me, uh, this is now a very somber crowd. Uh, no cheers, uh, no, no celebrating. Uh, some, some are holding hands, uh, some simply holding on to each other. Uh, to, to be honest, Scott, to be here in the presence of such a massive takeoff, uh, of spacecraft is is quite humbling. Thank you, Sherman. We're going to let the images speak for themselves at this point, I believe, Scott replied. The roar of the TDF engines took over the audio. A roar would scream, nearly deafening in volume, then fade to be replaced by another. The aerial shot revealed the port quickly emptying its packed taxi lines. Soon, only a few craft were left. Scott? came Bill's voice. Uh, that craft stacked second on the runway, uh, one east. That that should be Eric Pullman's. I've been keeping an eye on it since he boarded. It will be the last craft to take off. Thank you, Bill, came Scott's simple reply. The engine's roar once more took over the broadcast audio. From the aerial shot could be seen the takeoff of Noah's Ark, the large craft in line just prior to New Horizon, Eric Pullman's ship. Momentarily, its nose pushed up, its engines flaring as it shot down the runway. And there you have it, came Scott's voice as the last engine rumble faded. That is the end of the TDF presence on Earth, the last ship carrying the last batch of TDF personnel, purportedly all Atmo personnel, has just taken off from the Sheboygan spaceport. Today, August 7th, 2050, marks a change in Earth's history marks a change in human events for decades to come. Now with the exception of police forces globally, there are no organized armed forces anywhere on Earth. As of this moment, humanity has begun a new chapter in its history. Never before has life on Earth, since mankind first picked up a spear, been so devoid of the means of warfare. What comes next in human history is entirely new. A first of its kind, Scott finished as the ground camera finally lost the new horizon to the veil of space. The aerial shot had refocused on the crowd surrounding the spaceport, who were now beginning to disperse. As the day draws to a close, we have more details of the honor overflight. It was arranged unilaterally from the office of the Prime Minister. Already the minor minority leaders of the Commons and Senate are decrying it as wasteful and tasteless. Even so, a Facebook poll conducted by this network following the overflight shows 87% approval from a pool 
of over 23,000 people worldwide. Sherman, can you give us your interpretation of the numbers? Uh, well, Scott, I would have to say, uh, especially in light of how the, crowd, the crowds uh, here are reacting, that it makes sense. As you say, this is uh, a new chapter in human history. Uh, people, I think, are seeing that and realizing that the TDF helped open that chapter willingly. Uh, they could have fought the Articles of Exile. Certainly no force on Earth other than the TDF uh, could have stood against them. Uh, as such, I think that people in general, here at least, understand that it was a fitting way to acknowledge that sacrifice that these men and women just made. You say, in light of the crowd's reaction, can you expand a bit on that, Sherman? Scott asked. Uh, of course, Scott. Uh, what I'm seeing here is groups of people in prayer, uh, hugging each other, crying together, and as a whole, uh, they are genuinely uh, tears of sorrow. I believe uh, these people, in part, thanks to the awesome power of what they just witnessed, realize the impact of the entire military of Earth leaving. Uh, it's simply unprecedented. I don't think they really know how to respond other than uh, with sorrow. Sorrow at, uh, at a realization that this happened by their hand, their will, their volition. The side-by-side -side camera angles focused on various groups of people. As Sherman described, many were crying. One particularly poignant image was that of a woman, her face visible over the shoulder of a friend. Her eyes opened, seeming to stare into the camera. She sobbed. In her right hand, held over the friend's shoulder, she clutched two photographs. Both were of people in TDF military uniforms. One, a young blonde woman with green eyes, was smiling off picture left. Her first lieutenant's bar shone brightly in the picture's lighting. Over the top right corner of the picture was affixed a black band. The other picture, a young man, seeming to share many of the same facial features of both the blonde woman and the crying woman, likewise had a black band affixed over its top right corner. The man, clearly younger by several years than the blonde woman, had dirty blonde hair, auburn eyes accenting his face. Sergeant stripes adorned his uniform sleeves. The woman clutched the pictures tightly as she continued to sob, gripping her forms, her friend's form as tightly as she could. Dissension uh, The Cronkite Collection, 60 Minutes, 17 July, 2039. Good evening, I'm Katie Ralston, and tonight on 60 Minutes, I interview Melinda Christopher, world-renowned scientist and progenitor in the military organization ATMO. Please join me as I come to better know this fascinating woman. As the screen fades in from black, it shows Melinda sitting in front of a lab table. Warm lighting brightens her face. Good evening, Katie. The camera angle switches to Katie. Good evening, Melinda. Thank you for inviting us to interview you here. Is this your lab? Yes, it is. Melinda replies, the camera changing to take the, both of them in. And thank you for coming. It's my pleasure. First of all, I would like to ask you something. Of course. Go right ahead. 
Melinda replies. Melinda, you're known as one of the progenitors. Could you explain that a bit for our viewers? Katie asks. As the picture switches back to Melinda, she smiles. It's rather simple, really. You see, I'm one of the original people who helped create the technology upon which Atmo is based. Among our ever-growing staff, we have come to be known as, fittingly, uh, the progenitors for that reason. Switching back to Katie. We. Who else is considered a progenitor? Smiling again, Melinda replied, It really isn't too hard to discern. Uh, if you hear a name in the news today con connected with Atmo, it's that of a progenitor. For our viewers who aren't as familiar with Atmo, those people would be... With a slight chuckle... Melinda replied, Oh, right, Katie. Um, me, my husband, James Christopher, uh, Eric Pullman, Adam Green, uh, uh, Jessica Brun, Dandre Freeman, uh, Claire Van Ivan, and, of course, uh, Meng Tao. Thank you. And all of you have worked together for some time? Katie asks. Yes, we have, Melinda replies. Some sources indicate that the eight of you even worked together on a project for the United States government during the Coalition Wars, Katie put in. Melinda's laugh came through even before the picture switched back to her. <laughs> I'm sorry, Katie. Uh, we've been associates for quite some time. However, those sources are pure science fiction. Uh, after all, if we had worked on such technology as Atmo uses day-to-day -day as part of a government project, surely the government would have kept uh, such advances secret and for themselves something so powerful they they would not give up control of a valid point as you say atmo personnel do seem to possess very advanced technology it's said that in battle you wear armor that can deflect bullets katie says uh, not quite katie the the armor we use is technically ablative uh, that is it wears down as it takes damage which i would add keeps the damage from being transferred to us. Quite interesting. Aside from being essentially a soldier in Atmo, though, you're also a scientist, Katie says. That's right, Melinda acknowledges with a slight nod. You've even won a Nobel Peace Prize for one of your inventions, Katie says, checking her notes. That I have, Katie. Melinda replies, and I'm quite proud of them. Uh, the prize-winning innovation, as it wasn't really an invention, uh, was an extremely cheap and sturdy, pourable material. It could, in essence, be poured into any mold to create any shape. The concurrent application that really earned me the Nobel Prize was in pouring quick housing for the homeless. Mainly, you see, when we, uh, that is Atmo, go into some of the places we do, we're accompanying uh, safeguarding, supplies for needy people. In places like Nigeria, there's still the need as well as unrest. Well, sometimes helping bring in foodstuffs and other relief supplies is only the tip of the iceberg. So many people who receive the sort of aid we help guard live in shacks, uh, in hovels. With my portable substance, we can almost overnight pour walls for a whole village worth of new houses, sturdy, long-lasting, sanitary, warm at night, and cool during the day. And, Katie added, the camera switching back to her, doing so, providing how homes for such people was an idea you helped spearhead, correct? It does help when you're married to one of the two leaders of Atmo, 
Melinda says with a sheepish grin. But yes, I did. And now, when we accompany humanitarian aid into such places, we bring the wall product along as a basic necessity, funding it 100% from Atmo profits. So then I'm curious, Katie says, leaning in slightly, is Atmo more of a military organization or a humanitarian organization? Looking around to her right, a bit of self to her right in a bit of self-contemplation, Melinda pauses before answering. I always like to think of Atmo as humanitarian first, Melinda says, turning her gaze back toward Katie. Uh, militant, second. Meng would disagree with me in saying that to be able to do what we do in terms of humanitarian aid, we're necessarily a primarily military organization. And in, we, in ways, I agree with him. After all, pure humanitarians don't, out of necessity, always carry around weapons and body armor. We do. I can see your point, Melinda. Tell me, what, aside from being a progenitor, member of ATMO, and world-famous scientist, made Melinda Christopher who she is? Katie asks. The camera catches Melinda blushing ever so slightly. <laughs> I've never been one to toot my own horn, Katie, but I would have to say that a lot has contributed to my being who I am. Please, our viewers would love to hear it, Katie says as she takes off her glasses, holding them in her lap. Well, to start, I grew up uh, in a small town in northern Minnesota near the Boundary Waters, the, the 10,000 lakes that Paul Bunyan made. First of all, uh, that means I was a townie growing up. Second of all, it means I went canoeing and camping a lot when I was young. I, I was never what you'd call a girly girl. What was that like, growing up there? Katie asks. Well, Melinda said, it, it was, looking back on it, uh, quite a treat. I mean, there are very few places left today that are much protected wildlife, uh, wilderness all in one spot, such as the Boundary Waters are. You go out there on some of the larger lakes early in the season, and you just sit out and stare at the absolute clearest view of the night sky you've ever seen. No TV, no internet, no electronics of any kind, no lights, no cars, no motorized boats, just you and creation. It's something else entirely. I've never been up there, but I suddenly want to, Katie says with a smirk. Make sure you get a good guide if you go, Melinda replies with a wry smile. I know a few I could recommend. I'll have to get those from you later, Katie smiles back. Where did you go from there? Well, interesting story that. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, pretend, uh, to attend, that is, a program at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, by the name of the Regional Center for Math and Science. It sort of opened my eyes a bit. Like I say, I grew up a townie. I felt for the longest time that all I needed to be happy in life was a canoe and a paddle, and maybe some company from time to time, Melinda adds with a slightly mischievous smile. With a controlled chuckle, Katie asks, so what changed to that? It was RCMS. I went there two summers. My first was between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Uh, over six weeks, I took several intense math and science courses, but also had the chance to tour university campuses like Marquette in Milwaukee, uh, St. Norbert in Green Bay, Lakeland in Sheboygan, as well as a lot more. It started me to thinking about science as a career. 
I saw challenges opening up before me that I wanted to try and solve. It really changed my view of the world. So what did you do? Katie asks. Well, first of all, I decided to leave my small town behind and go to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for my undergraduate degree. It took a little while to adjust, uh, going from a small town of around 4,000 in northern Minnesota to a city of a few million, relatively close to the Illinois border, Melinda says. I'm sure it would. Is Milwaukee where you met James? Katie asks. Melinda smiles, replying, yep. It wasn't until our sophomore years, though. James, at that time in his life, wasn't what you'd call a morning person, whereas I was. So until we started taking our major coursework together, we generally took classes at different times of the day. Still, there was something there from the start. It took James a while to ask me out, partly because uh, I had a boyfriend at the time. Someone you had met at Milwaukee? Katie asks. No, no, um... Actually, my high school boyfriend from back home in Eli, who I'd dragged along to UWM. Uh, by Christmas of our second year, though, he'd had enough of Milwaukee. I came back for spring semester, and he didn't. By the way, Melinda says, looking directly into the camera, Dan Pine, thank you for running home. The camera switches back to Katie, who is laughing. <laughs> not that you're sore about it. No, no, not at all. Melinda says with a smile, leaning back in her chair, but worked out in the end, though, and I'm happy. Glad to hear it. What courses had you and James together? Katie asks. Oh, uh, a lot of bio and chem ones. I was double majoring in chemistry and computer bioscience, while he was <laughs> triple majoring in general physics, biocomputer engineering, and uh, general biology. To be fair, a lot of crossover in courses for him so not nearly as impressive as it sounds, Melinda says with a toothy grin. Hey, comes an off-camera comment. We seem to have a special guest, says Katie. The camera pulls out to show their setup in Melinda's lab as James walks into the frame. James Christopher has joined us on the set. And not a minute too soon, I see, he says. I was stopping by to see thing how things were going, only to be party to an assassination of my character. Oh, hon, shut up, Melinda says, reaching out, tenderly grasping James's left hand. James, I would offer you a seat, Katie says, but unfortunately, we only brought along two. That's okay, James says, the camera zooming as it tries to follow his movements. I'll just use this one, he finishes as he sits atop Melinda. Hoofda, she huffs as he sits. Katie laughs. Babe, as much as I like seeing you, don't you have some place to be? Melinda adds, trying to probe a knuckle between two of James's ribs. Hmm, he muses, subtly blocking her attacks as he gazes at the ceiling. No, not that I know of. Is there something I'm forgetting? Yeah, that you weigh about 60 pounds more than me, Melinda says, a smile in, still in her voice as her knuckle hits home, causing James to squirm slightly. Katie chuckles off camera. I probably should go. James admits, after deflecting a few more of Melinda's ribbings, getting in a few of his own before rising. I have a meeting I must get to in Washington with General Henshaw. Katie, James says, stepping through the camera shots to shake her hand. It was a pleasure meeting you. Likewise, James, Katie replies, still chuckling, as Melinda gets up, stretches, and pokes James one last time as he shakes Katie's hand. The camera again focuses on Melinda as she sits back down. She winks off camera. So, 
Katie says, that's James Christopher. Yeah, Melinda says, still looking off camera and smiling. He can be a screwball sometimes, but then again, Melinda adds as she once more turns to face Katie. So can I. Then I guess it was fate brought you two together at Milwaukee, Katie says, the camera on her. It was, but it was our love that kept us together, Melinda replies, the picture once more of her. We almost broke up during grad school. Grad school. Grad school at Madison, correct? Katie asks. That'd be the place. I don't know why they let us do it, but we were both trying three master's degrees apiece concurrently. I guess we either fell through the cracks or someone in the grad studies office felt our GRE scores were good enough that we could handle it, but it did nearly drive us apart. How so? Katie presses. Well, we were both so deep into our studies, so focused. Most of the time, I felt like my schoolwork was controlling my life, like I wasn't making any time for James. Whenever he'd come up with something for us to do together, I'd drop what I was doing just to spend time with him. Then afterward, I'd be twice as far behind and have to spend even less time with him to make up for it. He always felt guilty, like it was only ever his fault that we were apart more than together. To be honest, it was just that we were so busy that we never found time to talk. To find out, neither of us was happy because we were too busy to spend time with one another. Being so close and so committed to each other nearly drove us apart. Thankfully, James has some very good friends. They nudged him enough that he finally sat me down so we could talk. That's when I really knew that we had something that was meant to last, Melinda replies. I could see that, Katie says, and clearly it has. You two seem to keep it fun. How do you do that? Well, we never let things get in the way anymore. At least we try not to. Things like interviews, Katie says with a smile. <laughs> Things like interviews, Melinda confirms. But we also refuse to truly grow up. You know, we act like children? No, of course not. But too many people grow up and lose their childlike sense of fun, of wonderment at the natural world. Uh, they forget how to play and how to make the most out of every day, every moment. That's an interesting way of putting it for people as responsible as the two of you, Katie replies. For people who accompany and protect multi-million dollar humanitarian aid shipments to maintain their childlike wonderment, it must be difficult. Melinda's countenance sobers a bit. I would have to say, it's because we've learned how to leave work at work, Melinda begins, her eyes softening as she raises her brow slightly. But truth be told, she continues as her grin takes on a slightly devilish character, it's just because we refuse to become too serious again. We learned our lesson once already. Fair point. I typically ask one final question whenever I close any interview. If you wouldn't mind, I'm curious what your answer would be. Katie says. By all means, Melinda replies. What advice would you offer people today on how to live well, to live happy? Katie asks. Without a moment's hesitation, Melinda says, find something in life you love to do and never stop. Also, find someone to share your life and your love with. Between the two, you can't go wrong. Even when James and I were doing our doctorates, poor and still overwhelmed, we had each other and loved what we were doing. Same now, 
It's work, to be sure, but we're making a positive difference in the world. Sounds like advice anyone can follow. Melinda, thank you for your time, Katie says, leaning in to shake Melinda's hand. The camera angle widens to include them both. It was a pleasure, Katie, Melinda adds, returning the handshake. As she sits back, the camera once more focuses on Katie. That does it for me tonight. Thank you. Good night. And good luck. Behind Katie pops Melinda, holding up bunny ears on Katie, while waving goodbye to the camera. And I think that is where we're going to end it tonight. Uh, we have roughly 50 more pages of uh, source material for the paper that I had read previously. So that's two or three more episodes in what I'll call this season for the time being. Again, this has been Chris Reed's book. I'm Chris Pullman. I encourage you to head over to my website, narclaninc.com. That's N-A-R-C-L-A-N-I-N-C.com. Over there, I have links off to my Facebook and my Twitter account. Follow me there, like my page, and you can stay up to date with every new episode I put out. Send any comments you have my way on what you liked about these episodes, what you didn't like, any of those such things. If you don't have Facebook or Twitter, you can email me at chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com and that will come right to me I'll read all of those and reply as I can as far as this podcast goes if you're enjoying this, if you're really liking it the best way you can support this podcast and me right now is to share it with a friend share it with a family member, a friend, a co-worker someone you like, someone you hate you know, I'm okay with that too Point them over to iTunes or their favorite podcast application. Have them search for Chris Reed's book or simply Chris Pullman. And Chris Reed's book should pop up. They can subscribe and get every new episode downloaded automatically. Otherwise, if they don't do the whole podcast thing, point them over to Narclan Inc. There at Narclan Inc. slash Chris Reed's book are all the raw MP3 files of these podcast episodes that way you or a friend or an enemy whatever can download those and put those onto an ipod or any other mp3 player that you might have and then you can listen to this in the car on a run on the treadmill while you're playing a game on xbox or some such thing but for now i just want to thank you for coming back week after week for listening to this podcast and for supporting me by doing so that's it for this week. We will see you next week. Have a good one.